Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for April 3rd, 2016. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Amy Jacks Dean, co-pastor with Russ Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. Her sermon today is entitled, Have a Blessed Doubt. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Or so says Alfred Lloyd, Lord Tennyson. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. If we are not already, we should grow comfortable with this notion. The opposite of faith, as Anne Lamott puts it, is certainty, not doubt. But I don't think we teach this well in the church, and that's a shame. I'm really not sure what we are so afraid of about doubt. It's natural. It's normal. It's healthy. It should be encouraged. But I think that's the point of this story. Too many people are afraid to doubt. Just one Sunday after Easter, we take a look at the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. This may be why I'm so always disappointed that Easter is such a big Sunday in every church. Oh, I loved the crowd last week, but this story is better. No doubt the resurrection story is compelling, but I will always believe that there are other biblical stories that are better, like today's story. I like it more. It makes more sense. I can relate to this story because the truth is stories like the Thomas story, well, they are my story. And that's why I'm so sad that all the Easter people are done for the year without even contemplating Thomas. They are missing out. You can't tell me that they don't spend some moments during the rest of the year wondering if all the hoopla of Easter was really real. They were here today. They would know that they were in good company with their questions. Can you tell I have an attitude about Easter people? (laughs) And you can rest assured when you talk about them the week after Easter, you're talking about them behind their backs. Frederick Beekner says that believing in God is an intellectual position. It need have no more effect on your life than believing in Freud's method of interpreting dreams or the theory that Sir Francis Bacon wrote Romeo and Juliet. Believing in God is an intellectual proposition. Believing God is something else again, he says. 
It is less a position than a journey. Less a realization than a relationship. It doesn't leave you cold like believing the world is round. It stirs your blood like believing the world is a miracle. It affects, he says, who you are and what you do with your life, like believing your house is on fire or somebody loves you. We believe in God for one reason or another we choose to do so. We believe God when somehow we run into God in a way that by and large leaves us no choice to do otherwise. Perhaps we like those first disciples, are a bit afraid of running into God. So we lock ourselves away. So often it comes back to our fears, doesn't it? Imagine, if you will, being one of Jesus' disciples. He has just been brutally tortured and killed in a humiliating manner. Those who knew him best and loved him most retreated, terrified. They locked themselves in a room. I have no doubt they feared for their own life. Peter had already been recognized as a follower, though he denied it three times. Whether they were in danger for real or not, they felt as if their lives were hanging in the balance. And so so instead of protesting the death of their teacher and friend, instead of marching or instigating a hunger strike or calling for a boycott against Pilate and the Roman government, they snuck away and found a room where they could hide away for a bit. And then they locked the door for safekeeping. We understand this, don't we? I never go to bed that I don't check every door to make sure it's locked. How many times have we gotten all the way upstairs, tucked safely into bed for me to say, did you check the playroom door? No. You want to go check the playroom door? He never wants to go check the playroom door, so I usually get up and go check it where it's already locked, but I had to see it for myself. And we live in a supposedly safe neighborhood. We grabbed a couple of days away at the beach for a little spring break getaway. A friend shared their house with us. It was one of those really nice beach club places, not the kind we ever rent for ourselves. I was so fascinated to be right on the beach, which we never are, and yet right on the beach, we had to use a code to open and close the gate to enter the property from the beach. It's the beach. It's like this long stretch of land coming up out of the ocean. And in our one little spot, there's a gate with a code. I mean, I know you're not supposed to go over the sand dune, but it really wouldn't be hard to do.
Gene Owens, the former pastor at Myers Park Baptist Church, once said that he knew folks that lived in gated communities and a lot of them needed to be locked up. We love our walls. We love our fences. We feel safe when the doors are locked. We like our security systems because the truth is we are motivated by fear. It was the same with the disciples after Jesus was killed. On a national level, all of our presidential candidates are banking on fear to get them elected on both sides. Last week, when one candidate was asked what the top three issues the new president must tackle were, the response was security, security, security. Really? Those are the top three things? No Education, no health care, only security. That kind of fear keeps us locked up with just ourselves and our people. Being in our own homes or in our own land, one blogger described the connection between our text for today and our national obsession with fear this way. He says that the followers of the king now spent their fear-drenched moments huddled together in a room filled with fear concerning the eventual onslaught of those who hunted them. The ones who sought to end this movement of the man from Galilee were clearly out to get them. Fear was thick and tangible, surrounding everyone and filling each word. And look, we know this fear, the blogger points out. Every single day, we are told to be afraid. From crime rates to unemployment, terrorism to isolation, we are a people living in fear. We're told to fear ISIS. We're reminded that we're on the brink of nuclear war with an untold number of countries. We're told to be afraid of immigrants. We're afraid of sickness. We're afraid of loss. We're, we're told to be afraid of the wealthy. We're afraid of what we lack. We're afraid of our failures. We're afraid of our past. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid. We're a people afraid. And that fear, he says, has trapped us in a room just like those disciples were in. Just like the disciples in those early moments after Jesus' death, death, we've locked ourselves up in an upper room waiting for the other shoe to drop. Locked in a prison of their own making, the disciples completely lost themselves and forgot their mission. They're not living their identity locked up in that room afraid. As we all know too well, fear does this to us. It turns us inward, and as we succumb to this fear, the call to live an outward life of Christ-likeness turns us inward. Now don't get me wrong, I like feeling safe and secure. I think fear is one of the hardest and harshest 
harshest of emotions. I would be right there with them, locked up in that room. They had to have been discussing their next move, trying to predict potential outcomes of each strategy that they might come up with. And so what does Jesus do? But enter their midst. I could care less how it happened or what it looked like if they saw anything at all. Jesus entered their midst unannounced and uninvited. They thought he was dead. They did not fully understand resurrection any more than we do today. But I love how John describes what happens. No running bear hugs. No one fell at his feet. No one grabbed a chair for him to sit at the table of decision with them. He simply said, peace to them. And then he breathed on them. Oh, the power of deep cleansing breath. You know how when you're really, really anxious and somebody has the wisdom to say to you, take a deep breath. You know how when you're about to birth a baby and someone says, take a big, deep breath. When we are so afraid and so distraught, Jesus enters our midst and says, peace. Take a deep breath. And it seems that a calm came over them. I've heard people describe this phenomenon before. I've experienced it myself. Sudden, unexplainable peace. In the midst of a moment which should be so chaotic and frenzied, people talk about having this experience of this overwhelming sense of peace came upon me. I think that's what happened to them that day. People have that experience and they're afraid to tell about it because they think it may sound a bit wacky. But it happens. You really can't deny the experience of another. It's their experience. But unfortunately, that day in that locked room, Thomas wasn't there. He didn't experience anything for himself. And he doubted, not so much this occurred to me, Jesus. He didn't doubt Jesus. He doubted their experience of Jesus. But I've always wondered where Thomas was that day. Did he not get the memo about the meeting? Was he too scared to even leave his house? Or was he already trying to move on and put his life back together after a three-year hiatus from the norm? 
He had to rely on the experiences of others, but that wasn't enough for him. He wore his doubts on the outside, not afraid to say it out loud. I have to see it to believe it. One week later, they're back together in their room. Thomas is with them this time, and Jesus comes over them again with his consistent word, peace. And Thomas is given the space without condemnation. I know it says, blessed are you that have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. But there's no real word that Jesus condemned him. He gave him the space to bring his doubt. He ends up with the most profound of proclamations that can be found anywhere in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. But how did Thomas get there? He got to that profound proclamation through a blessed doubt. That proclamation comes after he has a chance to voice his doubt. And sometimes faith is like that. It needs the freedom of our questions and doubt to really spring forth and take hold. Otherwise, faith might simply be confused with a repetition of creedal formulas or giving your verbal consent to the faith statement of others. But true, vigorous Vibrant faith comes from the freedom to question, wonder, and doubt. And that's the last of my sermon. Except the notes I've made from the deacons meeting this morning, the Eckerd Sunday School class, the Sunday School class that I teach, and the Youth Sunday School class. One commentator suggested giving each of you a three-by-five card when you entered worship today with a note on it saying, please list your doubts and turn them in to the preacher so that I could read them back to all of you and you all hear each other's doubts. But because I feared that you would be afraid of that, I went to our deacons meeting this morning and I said, tell me what you doubt about God. This is what your spiritual leaders said. I doubt that God intervenes. I doubt that God is all good. I doubt that God exists. Is your stomach churning a little bit like a bolt of lightning is going to come in on us if we say this out loud? They said, I doubt life after death. I doubt that God is con in control of everything. One person said, beyond a shadow of a doubt... I doubt that God is personal. I doubt that there is such a thing as on earth as it is in heaven, even if there is a heaven. I doubt 
that we will ever see that kind of moment happen on this earth. I doubt that God is in control of everything. Our youth said, I doubt that it's all a part of God's plan. They said, I doubt the literal reading of the Bible. I never doubted that as a teenager. Oh, what a gift it would have been to me to doubt it at their age. They said, I doubt applying biblical stories to our life today has relevance. Oh, that one hurts a preacher. But good for you for doubting. What's it like to have a preacher stand in a pulpit and say, good for you for doubting? My Sunday school class said, I doubt it's God's will is ever a good answer. (laughs) I doubt intervention. Someone said, Sometimes I wonder if this was all just made up to keep us occupied. Now, if you're visiting us, (laughs) I'm feeling a sense of scared. (laughs) If you've been with us long enough, I think you know that the questions, the questions, have the potential to deepen our faith journey. But one deacon said it best, at least for me. I doubt a lot of things, but I choose to live as if I believe. I like that. I doubt a lot of things, but I choose to believe to to live as if I believe. You know, there's a saying, I hear it pretty often, have a blessed day. Have a blessed day. If you really want to explore your life of faith, more than have a blessed day. Have a blessed doubt. And perhaps you will join Thomas in saying, My Lord and my God. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced 
with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.